I think it's it's a good question because people are sometimes a bit too quick to under to think they understand what metacrisis means, and I don't just mean that it has a single meaning and they've locked onto it, but they've decided that they've got it enough. And I think it's worth understanding a little bit of the history of the concept to um, to almost grow into a feeling for it, because you need to ultimately develop a relationship towards what this term refers to. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. Quick note before we get started, if you haven't already listened to the first full episode of this podcast called What is the Metacrisis? I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. It's really a foundational episode that provides a lot of the grounding that is important for all the episodes that follow. My guest today is Jonathan Rousen. Jonathan is the co-founder and chief executive of Perspectiva, a London-based charity that describes itself as a collective of expert generalists working on an urgent 100-year project to understand the relationship between systems, souls, and society in theory and practice. Jonathan holds a first-class degree in politics, philosophy, and economics from Oxford University and did his postgraduate work in theoretical psychology at Harvard and Bristol Universities, including, and I love this, a PhD on what it means to become wiser. He's also a chess grandmaster, has authored five books, including most recently, The Moves That Matter, A Grandmaster on the Game of Life which, by the way, inspired me to teach my five-year-old son how to play chess, which he picked up rather quickly and relishes getting me into checkmate a little bit too much, I think. I gotta work on that competitive streak in him. In this episode, Jonathan and I take a deep dive into talking about the metacrisis. Jonathan shares his understanding of the views of many leading thinkers on the topic, and why he feels a perspectival element, meaning what does it mean to relate to the metacrisis from a particular perspective, is also critical to consider. He asks, how do you make it less of an it and more of an I or a we? How do we live with it, through it, for it? Jonathan believes the lack of spiritual literacy in our public conversation is a big part of the metacrisis. He says, in effect, what's going on is that people are not asking deep enough questions. He describes the metacrisis as a multifaceted delusion, that everyday consciousness is a kind of low-level psychopathology, and that our basic human nature is in a process of becoming, which means that our grasp of what reality is is never entirely right. This is exactly what Nora Bateson and I talked about in a previous episode, which is that we should assume that our perception is always limited. This episode is also packed with resources that you might want to check out, 
If you're interested in digging deeper into any aspects of the conversation that pique your interest, and I've included those in the show notes. Let's dive in. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining me on the Entangled World podcast glad today. To, glad to be here. Looking forward to it. I wanted to start the conversation learning a little bit about you and, and your story. So I know that you started playing chess at five years old and went on to become a grand chess master. And you wrote a book called The Moves That Matter that I've been reading oh. and I've almost finished reading. How I'm kind really of you. Good. enjoying it. Yeah. And so I'd love if, to begin if you would just share a bit about your story and how and why you came to do the work that you do now. Okay, well, thank you. It's a big open question. So um, I was born in Aberdeen uh, in Scotland. It's in the northeast of Scotland. Um, it was the oil capital of Europe for some years, and that's only relevant vaguely in terms of mm, when I later worked on climate change, I had the memory of being in this kind of oil booming city. Uh, and so there was a little bit of formative influence there. Um, I developed type 1 diabetes when I was six years old, and that's been a kind of a constraint on my life, but arguably gave me a degree of physiological uh, self-awareness, let's say, which may have had some transfer effects in terms of the capacity to question what's going on, and stop and think, and so on. Uh, I learned chess at the age of five, but I wasn't particularly good for until much later. It was just another one game among many. But then when I was about 10, my, to put it bluntly, my family fell apart. I mean, my mother and father, this is all public record, so I'm no need for the tears at this point. Um, I, uh, my father was schizophrenic and still is. He's a, he's a very success, sort of successful, well-controlled schizophrenic. But back then, it led to the breakup of the marriage. Um, and we moved, the family moved to London. And that was interesting because by serendipity on the street that we moved to, uh, Richard James, a famous chess teacher, lived. And I got to know him and I went to his club and started to get a bit better. And then when the relationship didn't work out in London with my mum, I was getting unhappy and asking to go home back to Aberdeen. And when I went back to Aberdeen, I was living with my grandfather and that's really where I got good at chess because I would come home from school and study by myself. And I think chess was my sort of way of sublimating growing pains. Mm. It was how I, in my own young way, found a world that I could control and grow in and get stronger at. Uh, and it, when things weren't making outside, making sense on the outside, it, it gave me a, a, a sphere of activity an arena where things made sense and where I was uh, responsible for my own actions. And that was a bam, a tonic. Um, and as if to propel me on that way, I got lucky and won a book award, uh, something like 200 pounds worth of books, which in modern money might be something more like, I don't know, 500 or something. It was enough to uh, educate myself about the game. And I did read them. I, I actually mm -hmm. used to have a set schedule of coming home from school getting a bowl of cornflakes. I remember where I was <laughs> sitting and I would study these books over the chessboard for hours on end. As a result, I've laid the foundations for later becoming um, one of Scotland's best players. I got noticed, I got invited to tournaments and so on. And um, fast forward to like, to when was it? 1999, I think I got the Grandmaster title. 
Um, and that was through a lot of travel involved. So I got to see the world through the game. I have been to several countries because chess tournaments were there. And of course, you you see it differently that way. You're not just a tourist. You're sort of in the world a little bit more. Um, and you get to meet people from other countries as well. So the, another big formative influence. Um, so that's my kind of USP, the chess side of things. And, and as you know from the book, I ref people kept on asking me, because I have a big life outside of chess, you know, what, what did chess teach you about life? And I realized it wasn't an easy question to answer, and it needed a book-length uh, response. Um, so chess was always like plan B, uh, but there wasn't really a plan A. That was part of the challenge. Um, so what happened was I got into, at school, at some point I was just like any other student somewhere in the middle of the pack, at some point, a teacher said to me, look, if you're this good at chess, you really ought to be able to do this stuff very easily. And that may or may not be true. There's a whole question of transfer of skills and the technical question there. But it did impress upon me the fact that I could try harder. And I did. And I started to do better in my exams and better and better and better until eventually I got into Oxford and I did quite well there. And then, But chess was still so seductive that I spent, after Oxford, three years playing chess. At Oxford, I did politics, philosophy, and economics. So I'm a, by instinct, a kind of philosophical social scientist, you could say. Um, mm -hmm. And then, then I was invited to write a book about the psychology of chess, and my interest broadened a bit more into cognitive science, broadly conceived. I wrote a book called The Seven Deadly Chess Sins, where each of the sins was a kind of cognitive frailty or a cognitive weakness that we have. And while it was quite chess-specific, I was always learning laterally about other things. Um, and then uh, subsequently, I did a, a PhD, and it was mostly because, again, I wasn't quite sure what else to do. Chess was giving me enough income to keep living. Uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's not something to do to get rich, but it, but it kind of kept me going. And uh, PhD was really an inquiry into the thing that I was curious about at the time, which was, how do we become wiser? Um, and for that, to understand that question, what is wisdom? And my thesis, while it began being something quite narrow about the precursors of wisdom in adolescence and early adulthood, the more I got into it, the more I felt I had to just systematically look at the field and say, what is going on here philosophically? Why are people struggling to study wisdom? What does it tell us about our way of understanding things and way of how the university framework is and so on? Um, so that happened, and then uh, I was becoming a father. This is around 2000, and, uh, well, my first son wasn't born until 2009, but I got married in 2005, and life was beginning to change. And as we were expecting our first son, I got a job at the Royal Society of Arts in London, um, which was a wonderful job. I mean, as a first job goes, it was perfect, because it, it was really a very, very vibrant intellectual environment in the center of London public events two or three times a week. Um, my job was initially to work on social networks in deprived communities to do a network analysis, uh, to understand community assets and the relationships between them. But I got more and more interested in social psychology. And, and as some staff changes happened, I ended up running something called the Social Brain Project, which later became the Social Brain Center. And this was basically a a uh, place within the organization that was trying to reimagine public policy based on deeper understandings of human nature, that we were 
much less conscious and deliberative and much more automatic and habitual, for example, mm -hmm. that we were thoroughly socialized and influenced by social norms and these kind of things. And, and trying to reimagine public policy with a better, fuller picture of who we are. And I did that. And around that time, funders started to notice me and I got asked to do projects on climate change. And that was a big awakening because frankly, even today, I don't think most people, you know, I hesitate to say this, it's kind of a, a value judgment, kind of elitist claim of sorts, but I honestly don't think most people really understand climate change. I mean, <laughs> I think there's a basic grasp of emissions and the government should do something and it's serious. But when you see just how wicked it is, as mm -hmm. in terms of the, many of the conceptual frameworks I know that you know, um, whether you see it through Moloch or superorganism or metacrisis or whichever one we want to choose, I began to get a glimpse of that. Um, and this is back in like 2013. And I published a report then called A New Agenda on Climate Change, which went down very well. I, got, I was asked to advise government and so on about it. But at the same time, my heart was shifting a little bit. And I had another question I thought wasn't really being attended to, and that was, I'd noticed in the RSA, which is an enlightenment organization, a certain reticence to approach matters that were broadly spiritual. Mm. Now, if you're in an American audience, um, the spiritual question plays out differently, because there's more of a sort of default, default religious setting. In Europe, things mm -hmm. are somewhat more secular. But even so, you can understand that what I'm really getting at is beyond established institutional religion, um, people have questions about the nature, meaning, and value and purpose of life. And they weren't really allowed to raise them when you were talking about what's the purpose of the economy or what should the government do. You know, these, these fundamental meaning of life questions were somehow off limits. And I was like, what's that all about? Mm -hmm. how, how can that be? How can we function that way? So I raised money for a project. And around this time, I realized if you can raise money, you can pretty much do what you want. Uh, so it's a kind of intellectual entrepreneurship. And it became spiritualized. And there was a second edition a few years later. Uh, and it was really about how to give intellectual dignity to the idea that the world's problems are in some sense spiritual. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. How do we begin mm -hmm. to talk about it? And that brings us quite close to the present day. Um, those projects played out and played out quite well. But I was growing a little restless to be within the institutional framework of another organization with its own agenda, as many people have felt in their careers. I needed yeah. my own kind of place to more roomy to do my own thing. And I got lucky and met uh, Thomas Bjorkman, who is the co-founder of Perspectiva. And he gave me enough funds for about six to nine months to give me confidence to leave my job, to raise funds from elsewhere to build the organization. And it's, it's never got huge. We've remained small for the last seven years. We just had our seventh birthday. But in the last seven years, I've been running Perspectiva and we've become a publisher and we also have an annual event uh, that we co-organize with St. Giles House in Dorset called the Realization Festival. We're responsible for something called the Emerge Network, which has had several events over the last few years. And we do a lot of practices, including something called the Anti-Debate, um, which is a different form of public inquiry that tries to get the sweet spot between debate and dialogue. And that's a lot I've shared with you. I have two sons. I didn't say uh, that my first son was Kyla. She was born in 2009. Uh, my wife, is Shiva, is a legal academic. Uh, she works at the London School of Economics. My younger son, Vishnu, is eight years old. Mm. So India is quite a big part of my life as well, through, through family. And that's given me a little bit of a global subaltern, global south 
eye, you know, just when conversations kick off, I'm like, how would this look there? That's been helpful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I loved that you you went into the spiritual aspect of, of what drives you and your work, because I think that is um, something that's a bit different from the ways that you talk about the meta crisis compared to how many others talk about that. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about the meta crisis and what we can do to support the emergence of a more beautiful world. And I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing about this topic over the past few years. And the term metacrisis can often feel like this sort of, you know, big nebulous thing that for many of us is feels outside of our power to affect. And I'm curious how your understanding of the metacrisis has evolved over the last few years and sort of where you are right now with your thinking um, with respect to what humanity can and should do about it? And I know that's a very big question. Well, it's a del delicious question, but it's like a, <laughs> a Thanksgiving dinner kind of question. It's huge. Um, well, uh, I think it's, it's a good question because people are sometimes a bit too quick to, under to think they understand what metacrisis means. And I don't just mean that it has a single meaning and they've locked onto it, but they've decided that they've got it enough. And I think it's worth understanding a little bit of the history of the concept to um, to almost grow into a feeling for it, because you need to ultimately develop a relationship towards what this term refers to. Um, so where to start? Well, the first thing to say is that whatever I'm about to say, you can cross-check with things I've written. So the first thing I'd encourage you to look at is an essay I wrote called Tasting the Pickle, 10 Flavors of Metacrisis and the Appetite for a New Civilization. And I called that my lockdown survival writing. That's what I escaped to when the world got too crazy. And uh, during COVID, it was somehow it kept me going to abstract and focus on this question. And the second thing is I've written something called Prefixing the World, which is um, why the polycrisis is a permacrisis, which is actually a metacrisis, which is not really a crisis at all. So that mm -hmm. subtitle um, is, is there for a reason. Um, and then there's a video that's come out recently where KTT kindly recorded me and asked me a question a little bit like the one you just asked me in it. But I agree with you, Nadja, that uh, it's a little different from how Daniel Schmachtenberger uses it, how Zachary Stein uses it, how many others use it. Um, so let me tell you how I see the history. I first encountered it in a book review by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams who incidentally is coming to our next Realization Festival in the UK and is an amazing guy. He's, he's obviously a Christian, you know, by profession and background, but he's known as a kind of public intellectual and philosopher, extremely erudite kind of person. Um, and he's reviewing a book by um, Milbank and Pabs called The Politics of Virtue. And in that book, The Politics of Virtue, there are, they introduce the idea of the metacrisis. And they speak about the metacrisis of several different kinds, the metacrisis of liberalism, the metacrisis of democracy, the metacrisis of capitalism. I think they have the metacrisis of civil society from memory, the metacrisis in international relations. And they go through each of them to try and explain. But the, the way they're using meta, and this is the key point, I think it's hilarious to me how much people use the term metacrisis without stopping to ask 
how the term, what the terms mean. So I'll come back to that in a second. But in the review by Rowan Williams, he has a lovely paragraph, which might even be worth putting in the show notes, but it's, he uses the term somewhere, he's talking about the underlying mechanisms that subvert their own logics. So what he, this is not exact verbatim, but he's talking about too much freedom undermines freedom. How? Because, for example, if you break down intermediate associations and the binding factors of churches and schools and trade unions and so on, if they all sort of disappear in the name of individual freedom, the person suddenly finds they're being bombarded by the market and they're, 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 they have no sort of defenses against other things that are trying to coerce them. Too much money arguably damages capitalism because we have a huge hidden debt crisis that um, someone like Nate, Nate Hagens, for example, speaks about as going, it's going to catch up with us before long. And then um, too much... Too, too much majoritarianism destroys democracy. You know, we think that democracy is primarily about the majority, but we've seen in many places that makes you very vulnerable to populist impulses. Democracy is a much broader picture of uh, institutions and historical memory and norms and practices and education. It's not simply a matter of where the votes go, although that's part mm-hmm. of it. This is the Milbank and Pab's take on the metacrisis. They're interested in how things undo themselves, um, they, things undermine their own efforts because baked into their aims is a some, some kind of deep inconsistency. So the first meaning of metacrisis is it's a critique of liberalism. More precisely, it's liberalism's lack of, its, lack of self-awareness. Um, mm. Someone called, let me see if I can get this right, um, there's, a, there's a piece in the Boston Review, and the author might come back to me, but he writes about liberalism's inability to narrate its own demise. In other words, liberalism is tethered to the idea of progress. And now that we're in a stage of history where it's not clear if we are progressing, it, the, the framework of the free individual, the free market, the benign democratic state is not working. Um, and yet the liberal has no recourse other than to say more of the same, please. Somehow we have to just get back to the right people winning elections and everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. So the first critique, the first idea is that, that's how I came into it. But things evolve, as you know, and the way I began to use it is I say, okay, this, this problem of the lack of spiritual literacy in the public conversation felt to me like a big part of the metacrisis. Because in effect, what's going on is people are not asking deep enough questions. They are, they're not able to get outside of frameworks like liberalism or conservatism or any other ideological framework because they're unable to allow themselves in a public domain to really reckon with who we are and how we should be living together. So that was the first encounter with it. Um, but at that point, it was, a kind of, it was a kind of cool new kid on the block metacrisis at that point. And I'm talking like 2015 or so. You know, eight or so years later, it, it's been around the block a few times. The okay. term is no longer innocent. Probably through Daniel, I think, um, who uses it a lot, as you know. And in Daniel's world, I, the way I read him is that he sees metacrisis in a sort of superordinate sense of the combined effect of all the crises seen through the prism of underlying generator functions, giving rise to a kind of um, historically specific existential risk. And the three generator functions that I remember, and he may have added or tweaked them or whatever, but you know, primarily 
Um, exponential technology, which means technology creating new technology. Rivalrous dynamics, which doesn't just mean healthy competition. It means something like un unintended and undesirable game theoretic outcomes in which people pursuing their own interest in a small scale harm everybody at a large scale. And, um, and, and he also speaks about consuming our ecological substrate. Mm-hmm. So he he says that we're living we're, we're we're living off our capital. We're eating into our principle in a sense. We're we're getting in the way of the planet's ability to regenerate and replenish itself. And those are the three generator functions that give rise to the macroscopic meta crisis, which is um, also analyzed by people like Nate Hagens in terms of the superorganism. And then this notion of Moloch as a kind of principle pr- principle of logic or principle of being unable to get out of our own way, that we're, that we're mm-hmm. locked in in a certain sense through a certain framework that leads us inexorably to a kind of omnicide or ecocide or you know that kind of thing. So that's how I see Daniel's view of it. And the emphasis there for Daniel, I think, is, is on risk. And you know, rightly so. The world is in a risky predicament. But whenever I hear it, I find there's something I'm not... I'm listening for or looking for and not hearing or not feeling. And that's, I think, because Daniel's view of the metacrisis is, and it's not just any limitation of Daniel, but it's just the way he orients. And we all have intellectual styles. I think for Daniel, it's primarily a third person problem. In other words, it's primarily an it. It's the system uh, and maybe arguably the paradigm driving the system. Um, But it's, it's the thing the machine, and so on. And I think that's interesting because it's not the only way to look at it. And Daniel and your, Daniel's colleague, Zachary Stein, wrote an essay for Perspectiva a few years ago where he was much more direct and he said, education is the metacrisis. Mm-hmm. And you may have seen that paper. It's an excellent piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zach's view is if you look deeply enough within it, what we're facing is uh, global societies Unable, being unable to reconstitute itself intergenerationally to actually, the, the process of intergenerational transmission has broken down very fundamentally because um, what we take, of, we take as normal living, go to school, behave, get a job, get a house, maybe a mortgage, um, have kids if you can, um, keep things going. Right, and if you get some happiness along the way, good luck to you. Okay. Um, but many people now are saying, "Hang on, that's not the world as I see it." I'm never, first of all, it's not clear which job is worth doing. I don't want to to serve capital, um, and yet I can't make ends meet without it. My rent's going up. You know, they don't see that world. So the question is, what is the curriculum? If you can't live in the same way, what are you advocating? This is what it means to say intergenerational wisdom has broken down. The world of ecological collapse and artificial intelligence is not the world of the 1990s. It's an entirely different proposition. So um, Zach's view is, look, unless we can speak about uh, something like societal autopoiesis, how do you actually build things in so that society is capable of reconstituting itself in a way that fits the historical challenges of our time, we are, we're in big trouble. And we have to learn to do that. And elegantly, the way he does it is through fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves. He says, 
within almost any wicked problem, within, um, and where wicked, your listeners probably know, a problem that's poorly defined with multiple competing perspectives, um, where there's no obvious solution, where it doesn't lend itself to a mentality of problem and solution. It's more like a predicament and it's vexed. Zach says within that, usually you have at least four questions. And the questions are about, first of all, capability. Like, are we up to it? Do we have what it takes? So let's imagine it were true that we could transition from let's say, fossil fuels to renewable energy at scale? And it's a huge question mark if we can, but let's imagine we could, uh, in, in a technical sense, do we have the human capital to do it? Do we have the political wherewithal to do it? Are we up to it? You know, Once we know what it is we have to do, are we able to do it? So that's the first problem within the, meta, the educational side of the metacrisis. There's also questions of legitimacy. Where it comes to really difficult decisions, on what basis can you make them? Um, if it's the case that only 10% of the population understands what's really going on, let's say, and I'm not saying that is the case, but if it were to be true, and the majority doesn't want to go with your plans, mm -hmm. on what basis can you legitimately say, no, you have to go this way, this is the way of the truth? Mm -hmm. Arguably, that's political leadership and you have to win them over and that's the democratic way. But with the clock ticking, it's understandable that people are beginning to wonder about that. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, meaning, which is like, underneath all this, what are we doing it all for? What are we living for? What matters? And that's where you get into debates about things like um, the, the long-termist philosophy and the, the sort of hyper-utilitarianism baked into it. So some people think it's all about a calculation of viable futures and um, that one life uh, in the future is the same as one life now, and therefore we should... Uh, calculate in a certain way. Others say, no, we, we can't take a long-termist view. Um, clearly, there's something about protecting what we know and love that is fundamental to human nature. Not every life is the same. We will always care more for some than others. Um, that's baked into part of the meaning question. And then intelligibility, and this is a key one that comes to my next point. Intelligibility is really can we understand it? You know, do we really know what's going on? Can we even hope to know what's going on? And this mm -hmm. is where, you know, I've heard people critique. Uh, arguably, they critique Daniel. Not, it's a bit paradoxical. It's like because he's one of the few people who seems able to almost articulate what's going on um, in, a, in a visionary, you know, macroscopic way, and it's extremely impressive. But it doesn't always ring true because people can feel that the actual truth is altogether more vexed and complicated and, and, be, and beyond any of us. So Zach's view is, again, you have to educate for intelligibility, educate for legitimacy, educate for capability, and educate for meaning. And I would add to that, and we did with Perspectiva's work, imagination. We need to actually educate for imagination so that we can begin to envisage other ways of living at scale that makes sense. Take a breather. So that's the next thing. There's more to say, but I don't know if I'm talking a lot. I do want to get a bit more dialogical in a second. Let me just download one more thing. Yeah. So have it. So having um, having processed those things, um, I began to wonder what I thought about it, what I felt about it, and I'm indebted a little bit here to Benita Roy, who 
was written various things that made an impression on me. But mostly it was one of uh, John Verveke's framework, the four P's, as he calls it, four ways of knowing, um, that I suddenly thought, this is, this is interesting. John speaks of propositional knowledge, um, procedural knowledge, perspectival knowledge, and participatory knowledge. And the, the challenge with Daniels is that it's a brilliant propositional description. This is the metacrisis. And in a sense, Zach's is a kind of procedural one. It's saying, look, if you want to deal with the metacrisis, these are the questions. These are the keys. You have to deal with these four or five questions. There was a missing perspectival element. It's like, what does it mean to relate to the, to the metacrisis from a particular perspective? How do you make it less of an it hmm. uh, and more of an I or a we? Like, how do you live with it, through it, for it? That was kind of missing to me. And then participatory, it's more experiential. Like, what is it? What is the lived experience of this time when I don't know your world well, but I know that, you know, many of us live apparently normal lives with schools and hospitals and friends and dinner parties and whatever, while watching the news that's telling us that this world is ending. Um, and yeah. there's a deep dissonance in that. If your work is in that area, it's tough. You know, there are times when you can't quite believe the world is ending. It doesn't feel like it. And yet, other moments you think, how can I go on living like this when it's so clear the world is ending? And by world ending, I should just clarify, I don't mean complete annihilation. I mean stability, uh, viable habitat, mm -hmm. um, humans having a degree of freedom, and so on. Yeah, um, the world sort of as we know it. world as we know it, yeah, exactly. So that got me into looking a bit more deeply at the, the, the meaning of the term metacrisis, right? Uh, so far, I've just described different people's takes on it. But when you actually look at it, you know, meta can be overused. Like, there's a lot of people getting high on meta language who shouldn't yeah. be, right? Yeah. It, you can, it should be on prescription or something. It's, you know, a little bit too, <laughs> too much meta out there. However, yeah. that, that said, the reason for that is it's a quite a powerful term. It, it, it isn't just superordinate over and above. Um, so meta in Aristotle is literally after like physics and metaphysics is after physics. But it doesn't just mean after. The term is beautiful and necessary and valuable precisely because it has several meanings. So it also has a kind of uh, beyond meaning. The after is not just like sequentially after, but actually conceptually after, you know, transforming and so on. And then it also has a meaning of in-betweenness, and that relates to a related word, metaxi, which is a kind of oscillation quality. So it's quite alive and moving. And then um, it also has a kind of meaning of within or self-referential. So if, I, if you give a, a speech about giving a speech, that's meta. Uh, mm -hmm. On Halloween, which wasn't that long ago, uh, a friend of mine cooked a meta pumpkin pie, which was like a there was a pumpkin, and inside it there was a kind of uh, pumpkin pie. <laughs> and of course, she didn't know she'd made a meta pumpkin pie, but I was yeah. wild. I was wildly excited about it. I took a photograph of it. I put it online, and you know. Um, so uh, meta is plural, and and the meta crisis is plural. And one of the ways of it, you can understand its plurality, is that it's not just a propositional it or a how to. Nor is it even a from a from a so for example the metacrisis in in authoritarian China looks different from metacrisis in 
drowning Tuvalu, which looks different from Scorched Australia, which looks different from, um, uh, I don't know, a Christian in India facing Hindu nationalism and so on. It, mm-hmm. it will the perspectival quality of it really matters. Um, and by that, do you mean the sort of individual lived experience of it in those different places? I, I mean, so so perspectival. So all of these things overlap, as I'm sure you'll understand. But the yeah by perspectival, I mean something a bit different from participatory. So perspectival is really about knowledge from somewhere. So it's like, um, you know, as a as a white European man, I I see it in a certain way. But I'm very conscious yeah. that my wife Shiva, who is from India, a uh, brown Indian woman, sees it different, sees it differently. Mm-hmm. Her, her sense of orientation towards it is very different. And that's mm-hmm. not to get lost in uh, in an infinity of perspectives. It's just to temper the propositional logics a little bit, to say that the idea that there could be a single propositional description of the whole thing is moot because there will always be vantage points that question and critique the relative priority of things within them. And the okay. way of, it also affects the orientation towards it. So if you're an artist, for example, if your instinct is to create and respond creatively, then the, the propositional logic might leave you quite cold. Your sense might be something more like the world's becoming less beautiful. How do I yeah. respond to the, the, the sense of beauty being diminished? Um, the participatory knowing is more like uh, more the sort of existential question of what is it like to live a life at this historical time, to have this historical inheritance, um, which is what it is. You know, we 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 didn't ask for it; we're born into it. Some of us are still living quite full, rewarding lives, and lucky enough to work on this and not be subject to it in some way. But we also know that there's a certain amount of time arguably because of the existential risks in which we have to orient ourselves. So all of that's a big build-up to get to uh, how I see it now. And as you know, I emphasize the delusion. I believe the heart of the metacrisis for me is delusion, not risk, although risk is there. I mean, none of these things are wrong. It's just a question of what I see as more central from where I'm standing. I describe the metacrisis as a multifaceted delusion. I believe it is historically specific. It's something to do, it's not to, although it's occurred before, uh, you can have these moments in history where suddenly the, the gap between how we think life is and how, we, how it appears to us is very different. You know, our story, our sense of normality is challenged by our daily experience. Um, that's, that's happened before. That's the axial age. That's the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, many moments before. Uh, breakdown of Roman Empire. There's been many seismic moments. But what makes this one different is that it's happening at a complete global scale. Yeah. Um, and that matters because it's the only livable habitat we appear to have in the far reaches of space for the time being. Um, and I think delusion is the way to look at it because I think every day, I've come to the, not that radical view, but it's considered quite radical by some that everyday consciousness is a kind of low-level psychopathology. That our mm. that our basic human nature is in a process of becoming, which means that it's always typically somewhat off the mark in okay. terms of its grasp of what's really going on and what reality is. And that, for what it's worth, is sin in the Christian tradition. 
which is which is actually based on an archer's metaphor of missing the mark. Mm. Um, but it's also in Buddhism. It's um, it's it's the struggle to have what Buddhists call right view in the Eightfold Path, and you could arguably say it's a kind of Maya in Hinduism. the The idea is that the prob the fundamental problem is that we're misreading reality. Our relationship to reality is out of kilter. Mm-hmm. And how do you describe that? Well, you can get metaphysical if you like. Um, Arguably, the problem is that we need a new metaphysics, but that just sounds like what the hell? Like, how can I? I've got to feed my kids. You know, what are you talking about? A new metaphysics, right? That's where I'm yeah. getting with the dissonance. Yeah. So, but I do believe ultimately, um, the the liberal secular humanist worldview is a deep part of the problem. It, it's it's on the one hand gives apparently orderly societies and apparently um, benign outcomes for individuals. But if you look at it writ large, it has a shadow, and that shadow is now manifesting as the metacrisis. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there. So I wanted to go back to something that you raised about the misreading of reality and this concept of imagination. So one of the things that I sort of struggle with, with this conversation around imagination and how do we imagine a better future, and if we can't imagine the better future, then we can't co-created, is that if we are fundamentally misreading reality, if we have limitations in our perception, which I believe that is a part of our human condition, and we are trying to imagine something different from a place of sitting in this current world and with our current perceptions and influences and ways of thinking that have shaped us without our even knowing, is it even possible? Is it is it sort of a fool's errand to say, can we imagine something better that will actually be better? Right, 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 right. Well, it's a good question. And I agree with you that like meta, imagination is overused, uh, or at least it feels like it sometimes. People, it, it's presented as a kind of panacea that we could imagine our way out of this. So I'm with you on that, totally. Um, Nonetheless, I think it's important to understand that when we say imagination, we're not referring to fantasy. We're not referring to um, things that don't yet exist. We're thinking about a way of seeing that is somehow a way of generating possibilities in the mind's eye um, that is a human part of the human endowment, part of who we are, part of what we can do. And mm-hmm. typically that's expressed in in the humanities, in art, and um, it's it, forms of human practice that have arguably been neglected, underfunded, and so on. Coming back to the relationship you know, that you highlighted in your question, if we're misreading reality, we're already somehow at the two plus two equals five mark, let's say. And then it's like, and now you want me to get the right answer? Like how, as, as I understand your question. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so I think that's that's a good point. But this is where I need to bring in some distinctions. I feel I've been speaking too much. But let me do this. It's in, it's in the, t- the pickle paper, if anyone wants to come back to it. There's a useful distinction to be made, and it's not gratuitous, so bear with me, between imagination, the imaginary, and the imaginal. Imagination, imaginary, and imaginal are all different things. So to take them in turn, um, 
You've probably heard the expression the social imaginary. This is used a term by Charles Taylor, Castoriadis, and various other people. And it's really like the sum total. Uh, the, the Charles Taylor describes it as the widest possible grasp of our whole predicament. So it's mm. a bit beyond ideology even. It's like the whole shtick, the whole thing, the whole yeah. um, way of being in the world, sense of what normal is, is the social imaginary, right? Um, and people do speak about you know, the, the, the liberal democratic imaginary and the, the socialist imaginary. And you, there's a whole debate about whether it's everything or whether it's in particular subcultures and so on. But the imaginary is like the setting, the psychological setting, the psychological and social setting of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the time when people are speaking about imagination, they're speaking about a human faculty to um, bring into being evoke, manifest, seek, connect things that are not already there, beyond, beyond sense data. So it's almost like an additional sense. It's a capacity to uh, bring, bring things into being that are not already there. This is what, um, but not, it's not, not, ex, not out of nothing, but rather it's, it's a creative impulse in the human mind and mm -hmm. and um, we actually had an event about this with Ian McGilchrist talking to Phoebe Tickell, who works on moral mm -hmm. imagination. You may know her. Yeah, best, she's but... coming on the podcast. Okay, good. Uh, so, well, in a you, bit. you you can um, she'll give you a better answer on exactly what imagination is. Um, mm -hmm. But um, the imaginal is where I want to focus here, actually, because that's something entirely different. And this took me a while to grasp. I've just finished reading a book by Cynthia Bourgeau about the imaginal realm and something she calls imaginal causality. And this is a sort of shift in registers. So if the imaginary is sort of sociological, let's say, and imagination is psychological and sort of cognitive, the imaginal is more resolutely spiritual. It's making a claim about the nature of reality. The, the idea is that the, the imaginal is the place of dreams and archetypes and images. And literally, the word means images, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But depending on your overall worldview, the imaginal realm is more or less real. So some could say, look, it's all very well having these archetypes and these myths, but they're not really real, right? They're just kind of like literature and um, psychologically rich and interesting, but they don't have life of their own. Mm. Others say, no, no, actually, we've been harmed over the last by the Enlightenment and what followed into a diminished worldview mm -hmm. that would say that these things that come to us in dreams and through coincidences and through ways of knowing that are more intuitive and mm -hmm. visionary, that they're somehow epiphenomenon of just the nature of the, how the mind is. Arguably not. Arguably these things are really real. They have their own ontology, their own legitimacy. What does that mean? It means that what happens here on Earth is, it's a mystery, but there are influences on what happens here that are supramental, that are more, mm -hmm. more than just cognition, that they're coming. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to speculate about what kind of a realm is influencing us, only to say that there are many learned, wise people who believe that the unseen 
the things that we're not aware of has real effects and, and its own kind of intentionality. Yeah. So that's a and many lot ancient cultures and indigenous cultures would agree that belief. Yeah, would agree. Yeah, it's quite a normal have you to have, and yet it feels like a kind of secular heresy, right? Yeah. So me with yeah. my academic training, I feel uncomfortable as I say it, but honestly, yeah. I'm of an age now where I could care less, like because <laughs> I believe it. You know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't fully understand it, and that's an important distinction. I feel the reality of something beyond material reality let's say i feel it manifest i feel how it plays out i notice it i feel it it's part of my life uh do i know where it comes from or how it works no it's beyond me is it wish mystical wishful thinking i don't think so i think it's more like let's try and lead into that a little bit so mm -hmm. to give an example uh maybe you saw i wrote a piece a few weeks ago called which gets to the question of what do we do which you haven't asked yet, but you can ask it and then yeah. and I can <laughs> We'll get there for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just that I, I speak about the flip and it's not my term. It's a, a term by Jeffrey Kripal or Kripal, I forget how you say his name. Um, and he speaks about the flip in terms of this fundamental reorientation towards consciousness being a, 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 an ontological primary, a fundamental feature of reality, not a mere epiphenomenon of matter. So that means consciousness was there before human beings were there. It's part of the fabric of reality. Mm. Value, and this is more a kind of Emigocrist angle, although I happen to know mm -hmm. that Zach Stein agrees because they had a great conversation about um, that value is somehow intrinsic to the universe as well and can be directly perceived. So rather than speaking of values as sort of things that we decide on that push mm -hmm. us forward, values are more like the attractors. They're already there. There are things that draw us forth and bring us towards them. So what's this got to do with the imaginal? Well, it's just that when you start to change some of your fundamental axioms, you say, hang on, so consciousness is a real feature of reality. There's a case that value can be directly perceived and is already there. Maybe the universe even has a purpose. And there are some people speaking about cosmological, teleological causation is back in fashion. The <laughs> idea that things have a cause, you know. Yeah. So. I'm not saying I have any kind of answer here, only that my orientation is towards those kinds of questions. Not to lose sight of the intellect or reason or the material basis of our problems, which is very real. There is very deep, there's war, there's poverty, there's ecological collapse. These things are just as big a part of reality as the other thing. But when you ask about imagination, I think it's important to grasp, the reason I mentioned the imaginary and the imaginal is that it's not just a psychological phenomenon. So in other words, it's not just that flawed human beings are being expected to do more than they can possibly do. It's that that's under the auspices of an existing social imaginary to which we're ill-suited, ill-fitted. Mm -hmm. And it's without the support of these other forms of life, the more-than-human world, as the term, I think quite wonderfully ambiguously puts it, the more-than-human world, supports. So you're the, the two plus two equals five problem being a premise for changing the world is mitigated by the fact that in, in, the, uh, in the imaginary, let's say, um, we, can, we, can, 
that imaginary can gradually be changed. It, it, it's something that over historical time we happen to know does change. And it often changes quite fast in historical terms. Like mm -hmm. if we suddenly change our idea about who we are, what consciousness is, what value is, what meaning is, what purpose is, then the imaginary shifts. And in that context, imagination becomes very different. What's possible, our sense of possibility. And then the imaginal, that deep, dark, mysterious realm of other beings and entities that is a bit beyond our grasp, but appears to have a causal influence on the world, in my view, that's also part of what we have to imagine into. So that's my answer to you. It's not a full answer, but that's why I'm, I don't despair about our inability to imagine a better world. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. And I think one thing that's coming up for me is that we, we, need, we need those different ways of knowing, right? It's not just the intellectual sort of cognitive grasp of the issue and the things that we can see and we can articulate and we can communicate to each other about. But there are these other ways of knowing that are equally valid and equally important, the intuition the feeling, a sense. Um, and I think it's interesting because one of the things that I've often heard many people say is that when they get to the point, those who have gotten to the point of sort of cognitively or intellectually understanding the metacrisis, many people often say things like, there was something that just f intuitively felt like, ah, yes, it, it makes sense to me, right? That idea of like, this makes sense to me. Right. And it's sort of this like felt sense. And I think I have felt the same way when I've studied uh, indigenous cultures or ancient wisdom, where there's this sense of there's something true here mm -hmm. and I can't prove it. I can't do a research study on it. And it seems to me I need to pay just as much attention to that. Yeah. And, and ideally they can coexist, right? This is the, I mean, this is, this was part of what Perspectiva was about. And I'm glad you it was kind of you to ask for my sort of biography to begin because part of my story is that being a chess grandmaster gives me a certain amount of intellectual license. It, it opens the door to be able to speak of things like we've just spoken about without people closing it immediately thinking I must be a nutcase. Yeah. Because I think, well, you can clearly reason, you clearly have a mind, <laughs> and yet you think there may be these other supramental entities having a causal influence on the world. And I'm like, well, maybe, you know, you tell me how the world makes sense to you and we can talk further. But um, I, I'm glad to hear you say that, all that, because like you say, indigenous cultures, but also even just like simple opinion polling, you know, pure research, uh, a few years out of date now, but, you know, something upwards of 90% of the world identifies as religious. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. You know, it doesn't mean like they all have the same view. But the notion that our problems can be solved purely from a material and rational standpoint is question begging. I'm not totally sure what follows, only that when you're imagining your society of the future, it's good to ask a few different things. What is the relationship to power? Because that's a very real question. Yeah. And how do you deal with conflict and competing interests and incommensurate values and all that stuff? But at the same time, what's the interiority of the human being? Like, what are they valuing? What are they caring about? What are they living for? What is meaningful for them? Because it won't necessarily be the same as it is. This sort of raises a question for me around wisdom, which is, I know, a topic that you love and you've studied deeply. Mm. Um, 
your PhD, I think, was focused on the theory and practice of wisdom. And the more that I've come to understand the meta crisis and, you know, the common underlying generative dynamics underpinning our multiple crises, the more I feel like one of the most important things we can possibly do at this moment is to become more wise Hmm. as a human species. And I wonder if you feel the same way. And if so, how do we cultivate yeah, yeah. that that wisdom, right? That, right. as Daniel Schmachtenberger often says, the wisdom of gods to bind the power that we have as gods. Yeah, yeah. In a world, I think he's also said, um, in a world where we have the technology of gods, we need the wisdom of bodhisattvas, yes. something like that. But yeah. um, yeah, the um, well, it's a good question, and it also reminds me of a my response to a recent conversation between Daniel John Vraveki and Ian McGilchrist. There's mm-hmm. a moment in that conversation towards the end of a three-hour discussion. It's yeah. about two hours and 40 minutes in, give or take, where they get to this point where, in effect, and this comes back to your question about wisdom, although it's a bit of a roundabout route, Ian says, look, we need wisdom. Of course we need wisdom. John's saying we need wisdom. And Ian says, look, wisdom is cultivated on small scale. Wisdom arises from cultural traditions, and um, it has to be cultivated over time, and it's about relationships, and it's about imitation and inspiration. He's giving a big story about the localized nature of wisdom, that it arises in human relations at a scale that is human, right? And Daniel, of course, being of a different mental sort of disposition, Daniel gets that, and he recognizes it, and he even agrees with it. But he's also troubled by the fact that you have this global technological arms race between, let's say, China and the USA, and probably not just them, but at least them, Mm -hmm. um, in which if one side does something harmful to the whole, but beneficial for one side, the other is likely to do it too. In Daniel's language, which is always quite funny to me, but not just Moloch, but he also says um, technology that confers advantage becomes obligate. That's a, mm, another mm-hmm. Danielism, which I quite like. Yeah. Technology which confers advantage becomes obligate. And he's right. It's just that um, another thing happened in that, in, in that interview, which is John Ravicki at one point said, these game theoretic axioms are not metaphysically necessary. Yeah, I remember, you remember that, that moment. Right. Yeah. It was the very yes, moment. It was, I it, do. Was an, that was, it, it stuck in my mind because I was right. like, ah, there's something there. Yes, hold on to it. Yeah. So it was an interjection and it, it didn't get properly taken up, but it, it, I felt that's important because it gets back to this point that social operating logics of the present day are not the only ones we've ever had, nor are the only ones we ever will have. Nonetheless, there's a big problem of now that we do have them, how do we get wiser than them, right? And so where they were with the conversation was, Ian was saying, you know, those seeking power tend not to be wise. There's a kind of an, something a bit antithetical about wisdom and power. And it, it's interesting to raise this uh, at this time of year. There's uh, arguably one, one esoteric take on the Christmas, Christmas story, the, not just the Christian one, but the Christmas one, is that uh, in the time of Herod and the, uh, the sort of context of the, the nativity story, which may have its own fabrication and so on, I'm not making a theological claim here, just that the way it was framed was this was the birth of wisdom over power. The, the, the one way to understand what happened at Christmas was that in a time where people were, um, you know, power was at its zenith, the Roman Empire, um, 
And this thing was born that transformed everything. And it was ultimately a kind of wisdom and the manifest embodied by figure of historical figure of Jesus. But the claim was that somehow this is the way to understand that story, that, that when power is somehow unassailable, wisdom takes it over. And ultimately, he, the, this, the Dharma talk um, that I'm thinking of, the authors escape me, but um, in this talk, he speaks about situations where, um, in effect, the king, the, 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 the priest doesn't bow to the king. You know, it's, not, it's meant to be the other way around, that the source of power, earthly power, is supposed to give way to the divine power. So um, you're meant to have this balance whereby those who are dealing with terrestrial matters still ultimately defer to the superior wisdom of those who are thinking about the bigger, mm. the even bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to come back to the conundrum, you have two things going on, which is that wisdom to be cultivated the kind of wisdom we need at a planetary level is not something that you can clearly cultivate at an interpersonal, personal level. They appear to me to be quite different things. You need some kind of restraint at a planetary level, and that can be either international agreement or it can be very strong inward pressure, cultural, political pressure, preventing international actors in certain ways. But these things are both quite idealistic. The kind of wisdom that I think is in your question is, wouldn't it be great if eight million people, eight billion people were much better? <laughs> right? Which is what we all feel. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we were all just suddenly like Daniel says we all became bodhisattvas? Now, yeah. Or at least the hyper agents amongst us. Right, right. right. <laughs> well, okay, right. So that's another layer to this. Yeah. Which is another thing. Yeah. We'll get yeah. to that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a big one. So basically what I've come to is that you need a kind of localized wisdom that is that has planetary awareness. And you want that to spread as fast as possible. But there is no real solution here. It's important to get beyond the idea that there's a fix. Yeah. Right? The better world that we're hoping for is one that is not likely to destroy itself at any minute. But it's not one without necessarily without war. It's not one necessarily without defection and corruption and cheating. In my view, these things are endemic to the world. They are... Mm part of the oppositional force that makes the world mm-hmm. work. It doesn't make it any less beautiful or worthy of loving, it, but it's just, it's part of what it is. It, it, it has its own shadow and it always will. So a useful question if I'm you know, thinking of hiring somebody or, or just getting to know them better is to ask about their idea of heaven or their idea of utopia. Um, slightly different things, of course. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you can tell me, like if I ask you, to turn the tables for a second, because I've spoken too much anyway, like if I ask you for your vision of a much better world or ideal world even, how does it look? What kind of things are we seeing? I think for me, there's something that sits at the core that is about two fundamental things. So one is sort of this broad awareness that we are part of an entangled interconnected world. And so the actions that we take have ripple effects in in places that we can't see. And so because of that, there is sort of an acknowledgement that there is a responsibility of care and of love with everything in the world, with the more than, than human world. 
And then alongside that, I think, is a sort of value that for me, I think, stems from that realization to some extent, which is that you, that we become humans who are able to value other perspectives, even if we don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. And so our approach to the ways in which we interact with other people around us fundamentally changes because there is this sort of perspective of the whole and that every perspective matters and that our ways of moving through the world with consideration and care to those perspectives are are sort of um, perhaps sort of result in a way of living, in a way of being that feels good, for lack of a better word. Right, right. So that's, um, as I heard you there, there's a, a shift in perspective, an orientation to the world, one that recognizes deep interdependence, interconnection. And through that, the sort of natural proclivity to care and love, not just for a localized thing, but to recognize it's part of this bigger entangled fabric. Um, and that that gives rise to culture and institutions that create a more viable and desirable world, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's roughly how I see it. I suppose the question becomes, though, in that world, who's seeking power? Yeah. Right? In that world, yeah. who's, who's seeking advantage? Um, and what do you do about them? Yeah. And, and, and you're raising something interesting because I think in the sort of arena of systems change work, it feels like there's also sort of this like bifurcation into two camps. There's like the camp that believes, you know, our, our systems are entangled and that we need to shift and that no one organization or no one person is responsible. Um, you know, that there is this sort of super organism in Nate's language that we've created, which now has a mind of its own. And then there's this potentially other camp that believes that there's a small subset of people who are in power, uh, mostly, you know, white men that are largely sort of pulling the levers and that they are the ones that need to be dealt with. And I think both are true. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the particularly this topic um, that we've been sort of circling, which is like this small subset of people holding enormous wealth and power some who may well be sociopaths, right? Like mm, there's studies yeah. that have shown that there's a much higher percentage of sociopaths amongst people who rise and become CEOs. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what ultimately, <laughs> I guess the question is like, what ultimately is to be done about the sociopaths? Because right, right. it's not, in my opinion, it's not, um, you know, it's not that, oh, if you know, like half a billion people on the planet suddenly came to understand the meta crisis and suddenly came to this perspective of interconnectedness that all of a sudden things would change. Because if those few people with disproportionate wealth and power continue to operate in the ways that they do, then I don't, they mm. would sort of somehow stop and stifle that change. So I'm yeah. just curious yeah, to yeah. hear. Yeah. No, well, that's a great question. And I, various ways into it. So the, the first, just going to be a bit of a stream of consciousness, the first on on superorganism or the idea that there's kind of one thing and one thing that we have to understand with its own underlying logics, arguably including certain levers of power that keep it going and so on. Um, I agree, but I think when you do, I mean, Nate's astoundingly brilliant, and I, I don't mean to question his judgment, only that 
There is also a school of thought that says a more fine-grained analysis gives you a somewhat different view. Like, for example, you can say the superorganism is increasing its use of fossil fuels and the increase in renewable energy hasn't led to any displacement, <clears throat> hasn't actually okay. helped. And at a macroscopic level, that is kind of true. Um, it's just that it doesn't really tell you what's going on. There's this, this famous line in statistics, if you go for the average, you miss the majority, right? In the same yeah. way, like, because there are some countries where they really have almost completely changed their energy framework and are, are mm -hmm. working almost entirely with renewables, and it shows it's possible. Um, and there are others where there's a more mixed picture of some great successes and little defeats, and then others where it's much worse than ever, and they're digging up new fossil fuel reserves and so on. But what that tells you is quite different from the picture as a whole, which just sounds very depressing. Um, one tells you it's going entirely the wrong way. The other says, hang on, there's signs of promise here, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter how you look at it. The second thing is, I want to say that the, ans the antidote to hyperagents are hyposubjects, right? And if you wonder, if you haven't heard what a hyposubject is, it's a term by Timothy. I Moore. haven't. Okay, Tell here we go. What is a so let me introduce you, <laughs> Nadia. Hyposubject. Hyposubject. Nadia. Let's introduce you. Right. So, hyposubject is a term by Timothy Morton, or at least that's how I encountered it. It might have come from somewhere else. He's a quite a famous ecological writer. I think actually he termed he coined the term hyperobject. And he uses it as, uh, in the world of hyper-objects, we need hypo-subjects. But I think something similar applies to hyper-agents too. And it's, again, a way of coming back down to Earth. So why do people like Elon Musk and Sam Altman and Jeff Bezos and you know similar leaders in China, President Xi comes to mind, um, Modi, you know, almost entirely men, right? Um, and mostly white men, and I accept. Why do they have this disproportionate power? Well, partly because the system that's been created by them, and I mean that in a sort of category sense, is for them. It's designed to extract wealth, to increase profits for the people who own the capital that gave rise to the profits. But people allow that to happen. So uh, in one of Daniel's interviews, he speaks about you know, of all the definitions of the metacrisis, one of the simplest is to say the world's run by sociopaths and people let them run it. And the key there is in the letting them run it. Like, um, I, I, I am no longer so naive to think that everyone will suddenly wake up and charge the fortress and, you know, to, mm -hmm. you know benign, benign revolution will happen. Nonetheless, I do think the answer is in people turning away from the spectacle not being enthralled by what these people are doing and saying all the time, somehow that would mean disengaging from the infrastructure that gives them power, including social media. It means um, not buying into their products as far as you can avo avoid it. Weakening the hyper-agents because they rely on these people's participation to have the power that they have. So, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to stop buying on Amazon or stop being on Facebook or whatever. But I am saying that if your framing is one where uh, the hyper agents are the problem, don't feed them, you know, okay. don't keep feeding them. In terms of what a hypo subject is, it's really somebody who places their faith in the local and believes that gets their political hope from 
action at a relatively small scale, but is nonetheless not oblivious or naive about the planetary nature of the predicament. So some people use the language of cosmolocalism to make mm-hmm. sense of this. You've probably come across this term. That's classically about production patterns, which says that if it's heavy, you use it locally. If it's light, you can let it travel. But it has a bigger philosophical meaning, which is to do with find your own niche, find your own arena, which will typically be quite local. It could be national, it could be regional, but typically within your, your orbit and your sphere. The problem is that our phones and our computers give us the arena of the whole world as our, as our a place that we're meant to act. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. We can't. We're, we're not world historical actors, most of us. There's, there's a, some people who are the yeah. hyper agents, but our role is to tend to what is repairable within our own context, but in a way that is constantly connected to the, the planetary predicament. So that means it's not enough to fix a flower bed in your local park and think you've done something of ecological service. But if you've done that and you've gone to give a lecture at school about it and explained the importance of you know, biodiversity for not only the quality of the air in the local area, but also the impact of that on managing carbon and how that links to the bigger problem the world faces, you've shifted consciousness in a small group. Now, it will shift right back at break time, right, when they get play out in the playground or they go home and they're back on their smartphones. But that's the battle to be fought. You have to keep on trying to win that story. And that probably also means doing so online in some capacity. But frankly, unless we change the, the information stream, if we stop the massive funnel of misinformation and disinformation, we're going to struggle to educate in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. So those who have the power to do so, and I, you know, I'm guilty here as a parent too. It's not so easy to keep your children from the way the world is. They want their consumer durables. They want their screens. They there's a kind of arms race in the playground about who has what. You know, that's yeah. that's consumer capitalism, and it's difficult to manage. But somehow it is our job to work within those constraints to try to prefigure a different way of living. One another way to understand it a bit more myth- mythopoetically is. And it's a somewhat strange analogy, but in in one of the Hobbit movies in Middle Earth, I, I forget which one it is now, but there's a scene where Galadriel asks Gandalf at one of the Council of the Wise, with Elrond and so on there. I think Saruman's there as well. They're all hanging out. Um, <laughs> uh, Galadriel asks Gandalf, why the halfling? You know, why have you brought this Hobbit with you? And Gandalf says, because he because he makes me brave. And I need his courage. But he also adds something like, in, in his experience, what gives him strength and hope, what overcomes evil, is not the big army, but rather the people tending and loving everyday life. And there are billions of them, right? But they're not politically mobilized. And to politically mobilize them would be to adulterate them in some way, to change what they are. So that's the... I don't know how you do mm-hmm. it, but somehow the... High, the hypo subjects have to find each other and have to find political voice um, in a way that begins to work against the patterns of perpetual hyperagency. Um, it's a problem. Another answer, a quicker answer is find or make a political party 
that has on its agenda significantly improving levels of inequality, which includes a maximum income uh, of set your level, $3 million, $1 million, $5 million, I'm not sure, but set a set a, a level at which you say beyond that point, progressive taxation becomes 99% or, you know, <laughs> and just say that's the policy because we need to change this pattern and re-equalize power and wealth. And your course will be incumbent power coming down against you saying you can't do it. But is it impossible? I don't think so. You just mm -hmm. need enough people mm -hmm. to buy into it. I love that example because it's such a clear, pragmatic one that feels like it would really swing the pendulum in the direction that I think would be better for all of life on Earth. And I wonder, to this question of what do we do, is there anything else that you, you might say or want to offer about sort of what do we do about this predicament that we've found ourselves in? So um, what do we do? I think it's important to be very clear that it's not your personal responsibility to save the world from itself. It really isn't. Uh, your responsibility is much more localized. It's to your family, your friends, your job, yourself. But you can't unlearn what you've learned. You can't unsee the nature of the world as it is. And, and I think what's going on is a feeling of the world unraveling that many of us have and a kind of panic that's setting in because of that. I would say very firmly, don't panic. You have one life. You, you're, you're obliged to enjoy it. And moreover, you're obliged to, I think it's almost an ethical responsibility to be, I want to say optimistic. It's not quite that simple, but I, I believe that these things are self-fulfilling to some extent, that we must avoid the self-talk that says everything is falling apart, um, there is no future for our children, find a way to survive the best you can, good luck. You know, you've got to avoid that. You've got to say, well, yes, the world faces very significant problems um, that are not getting better yet. Um, there is existential risk. What can an individual do in that context? Find the others, because you're not meant to do this alone. There's, there's a, lovely, a lovely line in one of Nate's podcasts where he says, and he says it, I think he doesn't even realize quite how brilliant a line it was when he said it. He said, you know, on this runaway train, you got to find the dining car. Mm. And what he meant was like, yeah, we're, we're all like perplexed by what we do about the news cycle and what it means and the inability to preserve our only viable habitat in the far reaches of space. And AI running out of control, although exactly in what way is this a moot point, but, but civilization-threatening technologies, destabilizing political systems, and ecological collapse. In that context, um, your first duty is to stay calm, to believe it's a future is possible, to find the others who feel similarly. And the outlook is something like what Zach would call post-tragic. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you've got to not, it's not at all to say, come on guys, we can fix this. Let's get the cheerleaders in and tell us how, how great everything's going to be. No, we, it really is a very dire set of challenges that the world faces. But the world is 8 billion plus people with thoroughly unequal power distributions. Each of us as individuals listening online, living in our lives, it's really, really foolish, a part of the delusion 
to think that somehow you have to carry the weight of that world on your shoulders. It's not mm. yours to carry. But how the flip side of that, and it's a big flip side, you do have to find what's yours to carry. Yeah. Your job is to find your work, right? Um, yeah. And, and then that work has to meaningfully contribute to a story of renewal that is somehow prefigurative of a world that's better than this one. And uh, keep looking for that, keep trying to create it. And this is where I'd go back to the more mystical side of it. I honestly believe that if you earnestly try to find such work, the universe will support you. And uh, call me crazy, but that I do actually, I've, I recognize that in my own life and the life of people I know, that when people make the commitment to what's in their heart to do, what feels like theirs to do, then support comes. Um, not always immediately, not without trial, but it does come. There is a there is a, a conceptual angle on this. Just very quickly, I, I call it collective individuation. I mean, it's a term it's been used before, but it's important to understand that it's not just a Jungian idea of become who you're meant to be. It's not a kind of in, individu individuated psyche that you have a person you're meant to be and you become that. It's that, but it's in the historical context of the moment. So the notion is that. By looking at your social and cultural and political predicament, you orient yourself towards it by saying, who am I in this context? What do I know? What do I care about? What can I do? And from that vantage point, you start to create your work. And through creating your work that's meaningful for the world, that's historically informed, you begin to discover yourself. It's like, ah, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I felt that way with Perspectiva seven years ago. Um, and of course, there are moments I think I should be doing more and, you know, isn't it all a waste of time? And I'm sure you have similar doubts. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I have similar doubts about this podcast. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but that's that's just it. That's what it is to be human. You, 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 you will doubt yourself and there isn't really an answer, but you're, the best you can do is to historically locate yourself, believe in yourself deeply and find what's yours alone to do and do it as well as you can. And that's it. Like, and like, if the world blows up in the meantime, bad luck, you know, and <laughs> like, but you can't carry that. It's not, it's yeah. not in your gift to carry that. Of course yeah. you might feel it. And that's when you need the others to talk about it. But um, that's why your podcast, for example, is very valuable because people need to hear that they're not alone on this, this journey, but you can find the, uh, the dining car, as Nate put it, you can, people that enjoy speaking of these things, enjoy figuring out how to act on them, are beginning to do things about it, trying to change the tenor of the conversation. Um, so I don't really despair fundamentally. Intellectually, I see a vexing conundrum at a planetary scale. Personally and emotionally, I'm very grateful for my life and I carry on living it. And it's somehow important to keep these two things alive at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I absolutely agree with that. There is a sense of the beauty in each moment that we have here on Earth. No matter what happens in the future, this moment, the, mo the next moment after that, there is a sacredness and a reverence for that. And I think the more that we can keep that in our hearts, the more 
that it allows us, it gives us the energy to keep moving forward, even though we might feel like we are in a conundrum that is sort of unsolvable. I, I, I don't think the world is a puzzle to be solved. You know, I mm-hmm. think um, it, it's a reality to be lived. It's uh, the meta crisis is our historical inheritance. It's up to us to just show up for it and do our best with it. It's not a riddle, nor is it a problem space lending itself to a rational solution. It is beyond our minds to actually reckon with it and solve it. But it's not beyond our minds to engage with it and see it as our context and to see it as the living question that our lives are the answer to. That's the point. Hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, yeah, beauty is right at the heart of it. And, uh, you know, I remember Daniel saying, I don't know if he still say this, but in passing, he said in one interview, I wouldn't care about truth and goodness if it wasn't for beauty. And by that, he meant that beauty is the thing that doesn't have to explain itself. It's just there. And as a chess player, I know that through intellectual beauty. You know, the beauty of a, of a, a move that makes sense um, has a ge- its own underlying geometrical, logical beauty. And that's a different kind of beauty from the beauty of a sunset or an art exhibit or a person. But it's the same feeling. It's the feeling of this is it. This is the beating edge of reality. This is um, this is. This is what life is for and about, and and it commands our allegiance. You could say it's it's the thing that keeps us going. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I used that word very specifically in the description of this podcast: the emergence of a more beautiful world. Because I think that is something that is it's you can't define it, you can't measure it. One person's definition is different from another person's definition. And so I was very sort of careful in the words that I chose there um, for that specific reason. And, and, and good choice. As you were saying that, flashed through my mind something funny that I just sort of thinking of people, how they say these different words, that normally when someone, something is stated and you want to affirm that it's true, you'll tend to say true, true, like a kind of like civil, straightforward and when it's something's good, you'll say good, good, good. But when it's beautiful, it's like beautiful. You know, it's altogether different. It's mm. a kind of dissolution of yeah. the self, right? It's a very different appraisal. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. I have so many more questions that I would love to talk with you about, but I recognize that we are over our time. Sure, sure. Um, so I suppose the last question would just be who would you like to platform on this Ooh. podcast? How long do we have? Because there are many. Um, <laughs> you can share people. one to multiple names. Okay. Well, I think you'll get a lot out of speaking to my friend Mina Salami, who is a uh, uh, an African. Well, she's got a mixed background in Sweden and Finland and Nigeria, and speaks many languages, and is a an African feminist, but she's also she's now at the New Institute in Hamburg, working on uh, a sort of black feminist approach to the poly crisis. So she mm. she has a very different range of ideas. She critiques what's called what she calls Europatriarchal knowing, and it's challenging for me because a lot of the people I refer to and have built my mind on are let's say Europatriarchal. They are, mm-hmm. you know. Um, even if that they're uh, um, 
North American influences there, there's also this kind of white man view of the world that you don't have to get into identity politics for that point. It's not to say that there's something inherently wrong with being a white man. It's just that epistemically, if your epistemic range is limited to a certain kind of embodiment and enculturation, naturally you won't see everything and you'll be missing a great deal of resources and insight and, and imaginative capacity from elsewhere. So Mina would help to make that case well. Um, I honestly, I'd quite, I'd quite like you to speak to my wife, Shiva, um, who the reason for that is that she, she doesn't realize half the time that she's working with logics that are quite similar to the kind of liminal web, metamodern kind of emerge consilience type ways of seeing the world. She, she actually has mm-hmm. that kind of mind. But she's in legal scholarship where most people don't think that way. And she's done work on uh, the Oceans Treaty, for example. And she did work on the pandemic where her orientation to the problem is very much to say, look, guys, there's a metacrisis. She doesn't use that language, but I can, I can tell that that's what she's saying. And they're like, what are you talking about? And she's saying, look, you haven't got the context right. All of these things are happening at once. And unless you see that, you won't get the next move right. So Shiva is one option. Um, and then Indra Adnan, do you know her? Indra I Adnan, don't, I've she's, heard, yeah. she's the author of The Politics of Waking Up, um, which is a book that Perspectiva published. She, is, she gives a lot of hope. She's a very, very uh, positive person. I mean, under no illusions about the state of the world, but very disinclined to fixate on crisis, very interested in possibility and uh, sort of finding potential and believing in people, believing in the younger generations especially. I think these three names are perfect, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do, which is broaden the yeah. conversation and the perspectives. Right. Um, and yeah, bring in more women, bring yes. in more voices from the global south, bring in more perspectives from indigenous cultures and ancient wisdom. Good, pleasure. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Well, if you're ever in the area, I would love to sure, meet in sure, person. Sure, sure, sure. That's really... a, yeah, these days that's a big thing, right? Yeah, I know, right? It's so nice to just meet people in yeah, person yeah, 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 when yeah. you can, yeah, particularly yeah. given that there's not, you know, I think to the point you were raising earlier about local relationships and I there's just... There's yeah. not a lot of people locally that Who, understand this issue yeah. and are sort of, and so all of my conversations about this topic are are mostly online. online and yeah. so there is, there's a certain pleasure in being I able wonder to physically if, meet with someone. Yeah, but I wonder if it means people like us need to just find a place locally and like almost preach, like not exactly preach, but just say like, this is the conversation, do you want to have it? Mm. Um, I have no, I'm not sure who's tried that yet. It's been a very much a digital phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder about Metacrisis Cafe or, you know, something with yeah. a better, better name. But Didn't yeah. the Stoa start off sort of that way? With yeah, like pre-Stoa it did. and uh, But I think I'm feeling a little bit of that pull to be a bit more resolutely offline. Obviously, online's not going, yeah. going anywhere, but I think like one offline meeting's about worth about three online meetings, you know, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also, a, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a new study that just came out about the impacts of Zoom um, and sort of the... I probably did see that, yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, it, it's interesting to see what will be the impacts of us from the pandemic shifting to 
all of these video calls and and not in person and all the people, you know, like I work 100% remotely from home. So I'm not in physical contact with anyone during the day outside of my immediate family. Right, right, right. If there's something there that you sort of conceptualize and and want to bring to life, I'd I'd love to help in any way I can. Okay, thank you. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.